Hey, listeners, welcome back to the Uncommon Leader Podcast. I'm your host, John Gallagher, and I've got a real treat for you today. I get a chance to interview the former director of football operations for Clemson University, Andy Johnston. Andy oversaw the day-to-day operations of the Clemson football program from 1997 through 2015 under famous coaches Tommy West, Tommy Bowden, and Dabo Sweeney. Prior to his football operations career, Andy was the women's tennis coach for 15 years at Clemson and guided his squads to five consecutive ACC titles, 12 top 25 finishes, and six NCAA tournament appearances. His 254 wins list him as one of the winningest coaches in any sport at Clemson. Quite a list to be on. It was this success and his leadership ability in tennis that led to the opportunity in football, a sport he had never played in his athletic career. I appreciate Andy's authenticity and humor throughout this interview, and his storytelling ability kept me smiling throughout. You're going to learn a lot from this interview. Let's get started. Andy Johnson, welcome to the Uncommon Leader Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm so glad I got a chance to meet you a year ago and now to have you on the podcast and chat with you, tell some stories. I want to ask you a question about uh, your past. I ask every guest on the podcast the same question. Tell me a story from your youth that still impacts who you are today. Well, I think the main thing for my youth is when, when I started in athletics, you know, it was back, of course, like 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, I played basketball. That was my sport. And it was like the thing. And I just love basketball. And then I just didn't start the story that happened. I was living in Somerville and we were in this neighborhood that had a court. And this gentleman came was volunteering some lessons in tennis. Well, these boys on the bus were saying how they were playing tennis. And I kind of laughed at them like sissy sport, like, you know, we do as kids. And uh, I'm like 15. And so I go down there and think I'm just a great athlete, basketball player. I think I'm some stud, but, you know, I obviously wasn't. But I go down there and, and, I, and they beat me. And that pisses me off a little bit. So I go down there, start hitting on the wall. I don't I have this old crappy racket half out of my dad head. I start hitting on the wall at this tennis these tennis courts in Somerville, South Carolina. And I think that really got me going. And then the coach, the guy that was the pro named Jim Boswell kind of saw me and he, I started kind of helping with lessons. And I really just learned by listening to him teach people. And I think without that kind of thing, I might've never gotten to tennis And here. I, I had small college offers. My dad was in the military. We get stationed to Scott air force base. And I was playing basketball up in uh, Illinois, which is a big basketball country. And I had some small college offers, but I really didn't want to go up there. So I, came back to Clemson and I'd only played tennis three years, but I said, what the heck I'll try to walk on. And I walked on and made the team without that. I think my whole life takes a different career path. No doubt about it. As we learn more about you on this conversation, but absolutely how the, the simple act of competition among young ones turns it into what that story is today. And let's, let's hear a little bit about that story. You go back as far as you want to, in terms of starting with tennis and kind of how we ended up on this, on this podcast here today. So just tell us a little bit about your story. Well, starting, you know, like I told you, I, I was in Illinois, my dad was in the military and we had four kids and we had one car, you know, in a great military life, but he was starting to do well. Cause when you're like, you know, he started off, you're a Lieutenant captain, you have no money before kids, you're shopping at the BX and the commissary. So he's on a trip and my mom goes, well, it's time to go to Clemson. So we, she's there with the, my sister. So she, she gets me a bus ticket to St. Louis and she goes, well, son, here's some sandwiches, maybe some sandwiches. So I take a 21 hour bus ride to Clemson, get off the bus on up there on 93 up by a 7-11 i ended up working at it nights when i was in school and i have to go in and ask which way is clemson they laugh pointed so i had my my little green duffel bag army duffel bag what looked like rambo walked down the road had to ask where the housing office is figured out housing figured out meal plans so i didn't have mom and daddy hold my hand 
And I think those experiences of ownership and, 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 and having to fend for yourself, not, you know, you hear about helicopter parents and, you know, lawnmower parents and bulldozer parents, but my parents put me on a bus and said, good luck. And I went down there to figure it out. And I think that helped me get confidence and help me learn how to get things done and be able to, you know, just have fend for myself. But when I went out for the team, I talked to Chuck Creasy, he went there and I wanted to play tennis and he was a first year coach. He was 25, I'm 18. So he says, we're going to have tryouts. And, and John, don't take this wrong, but I get there at the tennis center. You go in the locker room and like there's Playboy pinups, and maybe I shouldn't say that in the locker room. And it's just, it's like, a, it's like, I hate to say it. It's like this partying country club tennis boy thing. Chuck Creasy comes in with this Indiana blue collar, you know, he had a basketball background too, mentality hardcore, and he coached tennis like basketball. And uh, he said, well, so he said, try 54 people come out for the team, John, to make the team. So Chuck goes, well, I can't take 54. So he started something called morning madness. And we met her down at the track at Clemson at 545 in the morning. We didn't know what was happening, of course, early. So basically 54, 545, so, you know, six people don't, don't, they said, screw that. I'm not going to 545. Three boys show up late. He says, sorry, get out of here. So we start running 440s for time, 440s, one lap around the track repeats and a mile for time. And so after about two 440s, a couple guys throwing up the party the night before, they said, coach, this isn't for me. So it goes on and on like that, John. So basically for three weeks, this goes on and on. It whittles down, whittles down. There's eight of us left. And, and Chuck goes, well, boys, I can only take one. We didn't know that when we started. He said, we're going to have a tournament. The winners makes the team. Well, I was not the most talented. I mean, I only played three years, John, but I was, I was, I was scrappy. I mean, I played basketball. I was really, I could run as a good athlete. So I won the tournament, made the team. I was the only player that made his freshman year and kind of the rest was history. Played for Chuck. Then I was assistant coach one year with Chuck. I went one year to Furman. And then after that, I came back to Clemson to coach 15 years. So that was kind of how I got it going. And, uh, you know, that the rest is, you know, pretty much history. Cause after 15 years of tennis, then I did football. I ran, was director of football operations. And I told dad was seven years ago, I've had enough and I retired and I'm now I'm just relaxing. Well, I'm still teaching and doing things, but you know, just kind of slow down a lot. What a story. I love that mar that morning madness. I would imagine that would take a few of them out pretty quickly. No doubt about it, but they Get there from 54 to 8 to 1. Again, says a lot about the competitive spirit that you have. Going from the other side of that and what we really kind of dive into from a leadership standpoint is, you know, the recognition, coaching, the success that you had at coaching. You had five ACC titles as as the coach of the tennis team, 200 and I think 254 wins, if I saw it correctly, at 254 wins, 12 top 25 finishes. Right. And all of a sudden, you're the tennis coach over all that time. And right. you were telling me the story beforehand. I want to hear this. You get a call to be the director of football operations. So right. how does one transition from the head tennis coach to the director of football operations? That's exactly what I wondered when he got it. See, I was doing, I, we ran tennis camps. We had like 116 kids, you know, come at, we had eight weeks of tennis camp. We kind of had a moneymaker because I was only making after 15 years, John, I was making 38,000 a year. And I'd been, you know, four-time AC coach the year at five titles, making 38,000. I think the assistants now make 50. So I'm doing camp and I get a call from the AD, Bobby Robinson. And he says, I need to see you right away in my office. And then your, your mind starts thinking, well, gosh, I, you, know, you don't get a call like that. So I'm thinking, well, we didn't win the conference. I think we finished, you know, around the top 25. I go in there, he shuts the door and he says, Andy, you're very organized. Football's in disarray. It's our moneymaker. I want you to run football, be the associate athletic director, director of football operations. And I said, Bobby, I don't even know what that means. Or I didn't even play football. 
But he said, well, I'm going to double your salary. And I said to myself, I was a smart man, but I, I did say I'll do an express. I said, I'm going to be the director of football operations. The hard part was I had to go and talk to my team and, you know, you form relationships. And I think that was a big thing with me. A lot of girls, I, you know, not to say, but this is in, in a lot of situations, you know, Clemson is not a, you think tennis schools like, you know, blue bloods, like a Duke, North Carolina, Stanford, you know, you think Clemson, a lot of people think of Cal college, rural college, you don't know, think football, not tennis, but a lot of them came because I was there and they came for me and I had to go tell them that I was leaving and, you know, there's tears crying. And then when I got to football and realized how much work was, I started crying, but, uh, <laughs> I started, I just started, uh, figuring it out inch by inch, really, John. I mean, I really just had it from the ground up and actually Jill Wilkes, my administrative assistant, and I, we developed a lot of the forms and programs and plans that uh, the athletic department still uses. And we went from, I said, worst to first, we were the worst organized sport. Everything was late, nothing organized to the best. And I took pride in that. And I was Tommy West. And, you know, I got to be good friends with Tommy. Tommy first thought I was a spy for Bobby in a plant. He glared at me. And I thought, you know, I might, I might just get beat up first meeting with Tommy, but we became good friends. And then after two years, we went like, what? I don't know, three and eight, four and eight or something. And so we get fired. So I look at Bobby and go, Bobby, this is great. I leave a good job and now I'm fired. I don't get a job because well, I'm going to try to get you an interview with the new coach. So Tommy Bowden comes in from Tulane. He had a good season and of course, legendary son of Bobby Bowden. And so I go in to meet with Tommy. He said, I hear you're a runner. And I mean, I ran John, but I wasn't really a runner, but you know, I jogged at lunch here and there. He said, well, I'm a big runner because you know, trails running. I said, Bobby, I, of course I said, I said, Tommy, I know everything around here. I've been here forever. So he said, well, I'll tell you what, I hear you do everything. I said, well, I do pretty much everything. Cause there wasn't big staff. It was me and one of the guys. He said, he said, I'll tell you what, you go down, you fire everybody in the building, but you, and I'm going to keep you. And I went, Oh my goodness, that's kind of tough. So long story short, I worked with him for 10 years and uh, Dabble gets the job and I work with him like seven. Then I tell Dabble, you know, I'm ready to retire. And, and, uh, after I, I left, they hired like literally, I'm not teasing this number. I think it's up to 10 people to replace what I was doing by myself. So, but the, but the job got bigger, John. I mean, truthfully, when I did it, you know, it was just really, you know, me and I did it with administrative assistants. Now they got really like nine, 10 full-time people just who have, you know, compartmentalized, have just broken off the job because it is a lot bigger piece. So when I started, you know, you know, 25, 30, you know, whatever years ago. It's, it's very important, obviously, from that operation standpoint. Actually, I was just reading something recently from Dabo, and he said that, that Clemson does now have one of the, the bigger staffs, if you will, that, that have to run operations, and he says he has no qualms about that. He wanted to make sure that he had enough people. But to hear you did it with two, I'm sure you would have liked to maybe been involved in some of that. And as you say, things are going to change. Things have probably changed dramatically in that. I will, we'll get to that because we want to talk about the, the state of – college athletics today a little bit with you but i actually want to we'll touch on a, a couple of things maybe the like the challenges that you have so there's there's two things really i see as challenges that you overcame not to mention how you came up through tennis 54 to 8 to 1 in terms of the making the team as a freshman the success all the way through that to where you've been but now you're transitioning into you know a sport that you don't know and even as you went through that you were able to in essence quote survive three regimes okay and three leaders so what are, what are some of the challenges that you faced in, in building the relationships with those leaders that, that made you so successful? Right. You know, that's the thing that, uh, 
it, it, when I went into football, you know, here you can imagine football is a good old boy network. You, John, you look at college athletics and college football, it just rehash, recycle, reuse. Coaches are just great. They get fired one somewhere or another. All of a sudden, they're the great. Now they're the great hope for the next school, right? Mm-hmm. The last school couldn't stand them. Next school, love them. So what I had to do, first of all, is win the confidence. And I did it by being very organized and knowing what I was doing. First of all, you have to have you have to study your job. And I had to really study football, not from the X's and O's standpoints, because they just surely didn't want me calling plays, but from just what it took to run a football program. So I had to really educate myself. And, and I said, once I educated myself, I think they really, and I, they realized that when I was running things, things were running smoothly, they got, they got confidence in me, but you have to earn that confidence. You know, if I was lazy, if I wasn't organized, like when my daughter took her first job after, you know, college, she, well, she, I said, I said, Kira, your best abilities are dependability, reliability, accountability. Those are the abilities that are, you know, I said, you got to remember this. Half of America can't even get to work on time. Just show up, be five minutes early. And, and, and it just, it sets a good precedence. So, you know, I was a very hard worker. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, like I said, I work probably way so much. I mean, uh, it cost me I probably like uh, a first divorce. But anyway, mm-hmm. I worked all the time. I really did. I mean, I was a worker. I had to figure it out. And I was nervous, John, because, you know, it's a challenge. You know, people don't want people get afraid of challenges and won't step through the door because, you know, they, there are people a lot like water. They always go to the path of least resistance. And, you know, I took a path of great resistance, you know, jumping into an arena I knew nothing about. But then after, um, you know, I started figuring it out. I realized, you know, if once I, my part, I got it down pretty good. And, and then I got these peak, the coaches got to know me and realized I've been an accessible coach also. And I think really respected me. And when I spoke, they, and, you know, I, I had things running very smoothly and there were no glitches, but it was a big learning curve. And I think, you know, the part of, you know, you're going to make mistakes. I mean, you're going to get yelled at. I got yelled at a lot. I mean, you're dealing with type A personalities. You got to be a little thick skin too. You know, they can't see you flinch. I think they want to see if you're going to flinch when they start screaming and yelling at you. Because if anything went wrong, John, I did it all. I did recruiting. I did team travel. I did the budget. I did compliance. I did housing. I did the meals. I did, you know, everything you can imagine to run the program from buying paper to, you know, um, whatever, you know, chartering a plane to go to a bowl game. So, but, but when I, when things go smoothly, you know, it's great. I mean, I can remember a story playing Texas A&M and we're going from, we're staying at like, I forget this resort. I can't even remember the name. It was very fancy wood, the woodlands, the woodlands, I think it's the, yeah, woodlands in Texas. And they told me it was like a 40, 35 minute drive from there to the stadium. Well, it ended up being like a 45 minute drive, but uh, 10 minutes doesn't mean a lot, but it means a lot when you're scheduled about warm up and all. So I, so it's hot, you know, Texas, I mean, it's mm-hmm. another type of hot. So we get to the stadium there at college station and, and we're getting off the buses and Vince, uh, Vic Coning was our defense coordinator at the time. And I don't know what was going on. Vic starts sprinting towards me and he grabs me and, and it, you know, Vic and I are good friends. Don't get me wrong. And he starts like grabbing me and shaking me and choking me. And I go, and he goes, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. I don't know what he's talking about. He goes, what happened was the air conditioner had gone off on the defensive bus. So his players are in there sweating the whole way to the stadium. And I'm like, Vic, I can't fix what I can't, don't know. If you'd have texted me, called me on my cell phone, I'd have stopped all the buses 
I'd have taken all the administration, put them on your bus, put the defense on our bus. But of course, then we lost the game and everything's just my fault because the defense got tired. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, that's what you worry about in operations shop. Anything like the little things you can't, I mean, I hit our plane one time coming back. I'm in charge of planes, buses, hotels, you know, you name it, police escorts. We landed at Donaldson instead of Greenville airport, Ran, landing at the wrong airport. Now that's kind of interesting because they're like, what? The, I don't fly the plane, but of course I'm getting blamed. Like, where are we? I said, let me go talk to the pilot. I said, so I go up there and he actually landed at a military base in Greenville, which thank God there wasn't a plane on the runway. We'd probably all been killed. And being a military guy, he says, well, I said, listen, if it's a problem with enough fuel to take off, get just 12 miles back to Greenville. I said, well, I'll bring the buses here. He said, no, no. So we did it, but that was a whole nother story there. I bet it was. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, you should be commended for, for again, making that transition to something you weren't familiar with. And I like that in terms of having to win the confidence, studying your job, being organized. Love the dependability, reliability, accountability, especially teaching that to your kids as well and being a hard worker as you go forward. And each of those individuals, probably, as you say, they're type A's, but they had, they had different skill sets. They had different leadership characteristics. And you, you mentioned in an article that I read about you, you know, s- several people who have had an influence you know, on you as a leader, on you in your career. Tell me a little bit about, you know, who of those people you've talked about has been the biggest influence on you and what was it about them that was really something that influenced you? Well, I think that there were three main people, but the biggest influence was Chuck Creasy. He was my coach in college. He's still coaching. He's like 71, I guess. And he's still coaching the Citadel and actually bought a house in Somerville, a town I used to live in. And then he just bought another house up here, up in Clemson. So I'm seeing a bit more because he's coming up here with his family on vacation. But um, he had the most influence. What he was is Chuck was a basketball player from Indiana who kind of was self-taught, kind a lot, lot like me, very similar, kind of was a, went to Tennessee Techs in their Hall of Fame, played tennis. But he came down to make us the most fit toughest tennis team like a basketball team kind of like Hoosiers I think he thought that was it you know he was playing Hoosiers on us the movie and so we he just we we John we ran we trained he we did four forties on the track he we did some tons of suicides on the tennis court I mean if we lose a match Chuck would run us an hour after the match it was over after you played five hours back when we played actually really long you know good matches not these little short watered down versions tennis teams play now which is like over in two hours I don't know what they're in a hurry for but they try to get it done like they don't like the Sport. But anyway, so that's what he hit. Plus, here's the thing I learned from him how to motivate. He was a great, now I'm not saying Chuck was a great, he's all right with technical part of the game, but Chuck could motivate. Chuck could take a player that was average and make him good. He could take one that was good and make him great. And he could, he took a lot of players and won a lot of conferences over players that, yeah, he got to share top players when he got it going, but he had to build it from nothing. He had to get players first and develop them. And once you develop them, people see that people are getting better. Then that attracts the the blue chip players, you know, the good, really good players, like a Jay Berger who got top 10 in the world for us, Richard Manischewski, quarterfinals U.S. Open, you know, these type, Kent Kinnear was number two in the world in doubles, who's running the USGA center now, but he did it through hard work. And I, what I learned from him is hard work. We'd be at night grinding out recruiting calls at the tennis center at night. You know, I learned from him tough practices, getting the players in shape because, you know, once you're in shape, what do they say? The, the more you sweat in peacetime, the less you bleed and more. That was there you his go. philosophy. Mm-hmm. 
So we were in shape and we would fight because, you know, if we lost, he, he did not take losses well. And we knew the pain the next day that we could practice. We were afraid he'd lose. But he really instilled that work ethic in his players and he motivated players. And like he took a player, I, he wouldn't mean anything to you, but a guy named Richard Manischewski came in here, talented, but not highly ranked. And he got him to be where he got like the final eight of the U.S. Open. And, uh, you know, he was a very successful pro. So. And then, you know, that attracted like, you know, we even, uh, you've heard of Jim Courier who's mm-hmm. been the Davis cup coach. Like we had Jim Courier on our, on the campus for a visit. I t- showed Jim Courier around and Jim goes, well, Andy, I really like Clemson. If I don't make it on the pro circuit, I think, I, I think I'm coming to Clemson, but you know, that's what it got. It got players of that caliber to, to come after we got it going, but you know, sustaining it, you know, the thing is sports are cyclical, John. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always hard. I mean, I admire someone like Nick Saban right now. I mean, Coach Saban, what he has done has been amazing keeping at the top because, as you know, there's ebbs and flows and you, you're hot for a while, then you're not. And, you know, Chuck's, as you got led on his career, you know, they started waning a little bit. And, you know, he left here and did some things like internationally, worked over in, in Thailand and worked up in Port Washington at a big tennis cabin. And he got back to the Citadel. He loves coaching again. And he said Citadel's like it was 30 years ago because, you know, boys tough, they're marching. You know, they can take a lot of hard practices. So, but, you know, I think that, I think he was the most, Bobby Robinson was great. My AD, I still have lunch with him once every two or three weeks. He stayed here in town and he showed me a lot about how to stay calm. I mean, you know, you know, with being AD, you get a lot of criticism and I always admire how he never really got rattled when people are, you know, upset about basketball team or football team or baseball team doing, doing badly, because I tell people if they're going to get in athletics, you have to be thick skinned because your job is printed in the paper on Sunday after a football game. How would you like if you worked at Michelin and they said, well, John did a crappy job putting that tire together on Tuesday. And, you know, we're thinking about firing him, and, you know, he's got to do something, but you know, most people don't have their job in the paper and that's the arena we're in, you know, and, and uh, if you don't like it, don't get in the arena because you are, you are exposed, you are criticized. And right now, you know, back when I started, I worked for Tommy West. Now this is, he he was a head coach. He was making $350,000. I thought that was crazy money. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if any of our assistants make less than that. And now when our head coach, you make 9.2 million, you know, I'll take a lot of criticism for 9.2 million and I'll come wash your car on the weekends too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, again, those, those influencers are so important and, and they're, they're big in terms of ability. They give us to, you know, to stay relevant in our space as you were to grow ourselves as leaders also. And then right. certainly as you've been kind of, you know, we'll call it retired or semi-retired, at least from Clemson football for about seven years now, you know, the memories that still created the relationships that are built. So that's pretty awesome to have mentors like that in your life. Let's shift gears just a little bit. And you touched on it, you know, wanting to chat about this and you even mentioned with, with Nick Saban. I mean, that's the other side, you know, seven years ago, college sports, even then it was really big. Obviously Clemson football was huge. Dabo Sweeney, Tommy Bowden. I mean, they were, they were always big ACC but the, the sport continues to change with uh, in college athletics in general with the transfer portal and the uh, NIL and the money that these players now can get paid when they can't come in and things like that. It's different. Talk to me about that and what's, what's, what's your viewpoint on how things are going in college athletics today and how different it is? Well, I think, John, the college athletics is on a slippery slope. You know, and, and, and football and, ba- you know, basketball with this NLI and transfer portal in particular, you know, you look at other sports like our softball. We got this girl named last name Cagle at art school. And I was listening to the radio yesterday and she's got an NIL, but she got an NIL because of production and she earned it. 
and you know they're they're they and they paid her because of what she's done at, at Clemson in softball. What they're doing now with the NIL, they're using it as a recruiting tool. Like Absolutely. you know, yep. Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M bought bought this recruiting class for thirty million dollars this year. He and he'll tell you it wasn't what these players had done, what they're supposed to do with their name and likes when they got to Texas A&M. It's promises that you're going to get this money to sign with us, which wasn't really what the NIL. And like Nick Saban called him out, said everybody's doing the NIL. He, of course, he said everyone's doing the NIL wrong, but me. That's what he said. Yeah, but him, right? Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing: the NIL. And transfer portal. Here's the NIL, John. You're the quarterback, right? It's like you're okay. For example, our quarterback, you know, at Clemson last year, I think got a million dollars. Okay, so you're, but now I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the left guard, and I get zero, and I'm blocking for this guy. Okay, you've got a mm-hmm. few guys making this money. Well, where's the equity? Well, you're up there busting your ass too, and you're in the trenches fighting your butt off to protect this million dollar guy that's making a million dollars in college. And, uh, you know, I don't see how it, 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 there's the equity. If I'm a player, you know, you're supposed to all be the same, you know, we eat the same meals, we're supposed to get the same per diem. We're supposed to get all this together. Now it causes division and some animosity, you know, and, uh, I think that's difficult and the, you know, and also, you know, we're basically a pro sport without a salary cap. Mm-hmm. Think about without it. Without a salary cap. Wow. Yeah. Whereas pro sport, look at the, the guy at Miami, there's a guy that funds the program is worth $3 billion. He's buying those basketball players, football players, but you can pay whatever. It's not like there's a salary cap. So mm-hmm. you can go buy the best players and, and get the best because there's no rules because the NCAA put their head in the sand. They didn't want to deal with it. I blame the NCAA because they were they wanted to just wash their hands of it. And now they've got this Pandora's box that they can't close. And the worst thing, I think, is the transfer portal. We're, I mean, NLI, okay, players getting paid, great. I think some players, they probably should get something. They bring milk millions of dollars to the school coaches get rich. They get nothing. I get it. But the transfer portal teaches this John, our society, this is what's wrong with our society. Oh my goodness. Going gets tough. I'll quit. I want to go on welfare. I'll go on social security. I'll go on government subsidy. Right? So transfer tells you, Oh, the coach yelled at me today at Clemson. I'm going to go to West Virginia. Oh, they love me. They're going to take care of me. And of course lie. And you look at all the people transfer portal, it works out for a very small percentage of those kids that go into it. There's thousands of kids in transfer portal that have nowhere to go right now. They think it's going to be grass is greener and there's no grass. Like this Pumachan, we had a quarterback at Clemson in Pumachan. He still, he thought he was going to have all these offers. He, no one's talked to him. He's got oh, no wow. offers. Wow. And so these kids get stuck in the cold now with no offers, no scholarship. Now they don't get a degree and, pre- and it teaches again, bad habits in our society. Just like, why do you think we have a shortage of workers in, in all over America? People don't want to work. They want, a, they want a position, but not a job. They want somebody to hand them stuff and not work hard for it, just like players. They're getting soft where, oh, my gosh, if it doesn't, if it's not all roses and, and ice cream, I'm leaving. Well, it's never roses and ice cream. It wasn't roses and ice cream for me at Clemson. No, no, no athlete goes through a whole career at school or in pros where it's all great. But that's what you have to learn how to, you know, get through the tough. You know, and, and that's what teaches you character and perseverance. Those are, you know, you don't learn perseverance or stick to itness, and you learn how to quit. And I think the transfer portal just teaches kids how to quit. You know, it's like this: taking responsibility. Okay, for example, now these kids, a lot of kids, they go to college, and and, and I know they get these student um, loans, right? Right. Well, did anybody twist their arm and make them sign a student loan? No, but now they want student loan forgiveness. Okay. I signed a, a loan with my wife, Karen. Well, I don't want to pay my, my mortgage now. Can you? I want mortgage relief. I want somebody to pay my mortgage because I don't want to pay it off. And even though I signed the mortgage papers knowingly, I don't want to do it now. Well, that's what it teaches kids. 
you've got to take responsibility for your actions. And that's what people don't want to do. And, and, and me as a parent, I'm guilty because we want to make it better for our kids. And, you know, we all want them to do good. But I think we've done our kids a disservice about sometimes just taking responsibility. And it's hard not it's hard not to do because I'm as guilty as anybody, John. But I think that's what really transfer portal bothers me is that it teaches people how to quit. No, I, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I don't know a good way to fix it either. I don't know how they close that door now. And I actually had not heard. I, I don't know what the date is, but I hadn't heard about that many that are going into the transfer portal, but not coming back out. They're not getting opportunities in some other way. And I can see where that can be a problem. You mentioned the grass is always greener. And somebody told me recently, the grass is greener. Might've been my pastor. The grass is greener where you water it. And yeah, you know, that's, that's right. It's not necessarily greener on the other side, or as you say, right. it's not ice cream and, and candy either. It's hard work. And right. those who tell you that you'll find a place to, you know, that you love doing the work that you do and you'll never have to work a day in life are just lying to you because that's when you start to work harder is when you have something you're passionate about and you make that happen. You talked about it. You know, we as family can be teaching more about character and perseverance. And that's it. I mean, it's an interesting correlation between the transfer portal and how our society is operating today. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. There's so much there that uh, probably goes in line with it and it starts at home, whatever we can do. So I, I appreciate you kind of sharing your thoughts on that and well, I don't know how it gets fixed. Like I, said, I don't know how they put that stuff back in Pandora's box and, and make that happen, but there's going to have to be some type of changes that allow it to, to get better for college sports, or it's going to be a big challenge in the future. And the mm -hmm. rich will just continue to get richer, no doubt about it, in that sport. Mm -hmm. hey, Andy, I've, I've really enjoyed and appreciated our conversation today. I know our listeners are going to do that. And I always kind of finish it off with one other question, because and maybe maybe you've kind of touched on this a little bit a little bit already, but it's an opportunity, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a billboard and you can put anything on it, anywhere you want to put it for millions of people to see. What, what, what do you write on that billboard? Wow. That's a great question. And there's so many things I'd want to write, John. I got so many ideas, but people don't usually want to hear them because I always say this about teaching and coaching. People don't care what you know, unless they know that you care. Mm. And that's what's important. You have to have a relationship. You can push a player very hard if they know that you care. But if they don't think you care for them, they don't want to hear what you have to say. So people don't care what you know unless they know that you care. That would be one thing. But I'd, I'd also want to say that, you know, we have a saying, you know, in the football building, which I really like that dad put up in the team room that says right is right. Even if no one's doing it, wrong is wrong. If everybody's doing it. And he said, you know, stick to basically do what's right. And I think that's kind of brings it up. Do what's right. You know, people know what's right. They really do. And, and deep down, people know what they're doing wrong. And I would just say right is right. You know, even if no one's doing it, wrong is wrong. Even if everybody's doing it, just do what's right. And I think if you do right things, you know, this world would be a better place. That's why I so look forward to this conversation, because I knew you were going to be authentic. I knew you're going to share, make, <laughs> me, make me laugh. And I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this as well. Hey, thanks so much for the conversation sure. we had today. And I hope we get a chance to stay in touch and do it again sometime soon. Okay. Thanks, John. Been great. Good luck. Go Mountaineers. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I tried to pull out some nuggets from Andy's stories here and summarize them in just a few key points. He challenged his daughter with three abilities to be successful dependability, reliability, and accountability. To succeed in a new sport with new leaders, he had to gain the confidence of his leaders. He did this through hard work, studying his job, and being organized. I appreciate when he talked about his mentors who instilled in him the importance of hard work. 
The more you sweat in peacetime, the less you sweat in work. In his mantra, borrowed from Dabo Sweeney, right is right, even if no one is doing it, and wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. So do what's right. It's simple and powerful. And as he said, if we just did this, the world would be a better place. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, I encourage you to visit UncommonLeaderPodcast.com to sign up now on your preferred platform. You can also catch up on all the past episodes and great interviews that we've had. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. You could also drop us a five-star rating with a sentence or two about what you liked about it. It helps to get this into the hands of more Uncommon Leaders. Until next time, Uncommon Leader Podcast Nation, go and grow champions.